morning, if you have a copy of God's Word, could you take it and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18? We're going to resume a series we began uh, last year in the life of Elijah. I'm going to ask David Manley to come up. He's going to be reading beginning in verse 17. So this is 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 17. If you picked up one of the Bibles in the back, it'll be page 206, 206. Morning, church. 1 Kings 18, 17 through 24. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your, yeah, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, and left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Some of the greatest historical moments, some of the best writing that you'll ever read portray some sort of conflict, some sort of epic conflict where all the action has increased and increased and there are characters in two different sides set against each other and it's just inevitable that in some dramatic fashion something's going to get resolved. And before the holidays we were looking at Elijah and kind of looking at his life and From the very first time we're introduced to Elijah, it is setting up a conflict. There are really two sides of it. On one side is Elijah, who, in case you're maybe even new to the story, is a faithful, true, loyal prophet of God. He lives and breathes according to God's word. And he has watched his people, the people of God, descend into rebellion against God. And obviously, this has grieved his heart, and he knows that this isn't just like, well, everybody's kind of working things out for themselves. That's that's not Elijah's attitude. And it's not our attitude either when we watch people that are just on kind of suicidal mission spiritually to ruin their relationship with God. And so his heart is broken, and his heart is grieved, and, and he's sent on mission from God to confront the leader who is kind of leading the people of God into this rebellion, and that leader's name is Ahab. So we have Elijah on one side, and we have Ahab on the other. And so we read about him in this passage. We, we've read about the confrontation. Ahab is the king, and his wife Jezebel is the queen, and the two of them have been leading the nation of Israel. And it's the only nation on the earth that had been commissioned to be a light to the world. And they were not doing that. And Ahab and Jezebel were leading them into deeper rebellion against God, introducing even idols. Uh, one of the idols mentioned was 
Baal, introducing that into the, the worship of the people of Israel. So that, that's, that's the stage that's set. There, there are these main characters in the clash, and when you begin reading in 1 Kings 17, it kind of sets up this confrontation. You, you know it's coming at some point, this high point of drama, and, and we get to chapter 18, it's come, and God's going to push his people to a certain decision. This chapter is go time. I I think if we read a little bit more deeply into this story, just take a few moments and and hear the conflict and see the stakes and feel those, I believe the Lord might have something for us. And I I think this story in particular will push us to ask a couple of questions. So here's where we'll be this morning, and, and particularly having this story lead us to ask a couple questions. One of those questions is this, what is the choice that we always have to make? What is the choice we always have to make? Now, I want to follow that that question with what does it look like when we have a real relationship with God? So can we start here? What is the choice that all of us are going to have to make? The choice we have to make is fundamentally a choice of whether we will waver or hesitate in our relationship with God. So that, that, that is what Elijah points to in verse 21. He says, How long will you go limping or wavering or hesitating between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, well, then follow him. Yeah, if Baal's God, well, then follow him. But but don't think you can make this like non-decision. He pushes them because they're hesitating whether they will worship and recognize that the Lord truly is God alone. So what does it look like when we're spiritually wavering? What does it look like when we go back and forth? Well, we know what it looked like for them. I mean, this is what they were wavering between. Okay, so they had the God of their history, maybe the God of their traditions. The God who had in the past somewhere, distant past, had commissioned them as a nation. The God who had given them uh, commandments and statutes and rules to kind of map out what morality looks like. That was on one hand. So it doesn't seem like they're ready to release all that just yet. But on the other hand, this is what else was causing them to waver. And that is kind of the, the new religion of the day, which was kind of epitomized with Baal, where the, the way it worked with Baal is whatever you want kind of goes. However you want to live, that, that's what goes. And God's like totally fine with you being you. He's, he's really okay with that. So you just do it the way you want to do it. And God's for that. And somewhere along the line, I don't know that it would have happened immediately, but somewhere along the, li- along the line, the people of God thought they could kind of have it both ways. The God of, of their tradition and this new God that endorsed everything they wanted to do. And so they were merging those things together. But Elijah tells them that that theoretical option of indecision, oh, I'm not going to pick sides yet, that day is over. Maybe they lingered for a long time. Maybe they didn't even notice there was a problem. Maybe they thought, we can just go on and we'll get the best of both worlds. If we don't have to make a decision, why make one? But that day is over. If the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. I think for this story to give us maximum benefit, I think we have to look at it as more than just 
like a history lesson, a biblical history lesson. It, it is that. And this is history, but it's not just history. It's not a relic from the past. There are, there are ways in which this story will speak to us this morning. There are ways in which we are more similar to the Israelites, even if you don't have a, a statue of Baal in your home. There's ways we are more similar than we might first realize. We don't see it at first glance. Our idols may look a little bit different, but we have our own decisions to make. Here's where I, I see us in 2017 often where we hesitate between two opinions, where we stand at the crossroad and go, I, I think I'd like both. Because, because we too have, on the one hand, we have, we have God and we don't mind some dose of God, some dose of you know, traditional religion. We're glad to pull God out to talk about blessing, you know, and maybe bless you and bless the people that we care about. We have no problem identifying, saying, well, you know, if, if my identity, I, I'm a Christian. We have no, no problem with some sort of religious community. We like for God to show up at mealtimes when we remember. We don't mind saying a, a prayer to, to him occasionally. Holidays, we're glad to sing Christmas carols that have God in them. We're glad to attend church occasionally when we can make it. We're glad even to give occasionally if, if, if we have something to give. A little bit of charitable giving to this God. We, we, we worship a God like that. But then we waver because on the other hand, there's, there's this kind of hybrid thing we like to do because we also, we also think life's pretty much all about us. And we, and we also find comfort in the fact that like our business is nobody else's business. So I'll live my life how I want to. So on the one hand, we, we do have some form of God in our lives, but on the other hand, we we like our own lives. We like the pleasure, the success, the money, the academics that, that actually are pulling the strings in our life. We see no reason for self-denial. Why would anybody do that? I want it my way. We want money, possession, status because they give us the things we really want. And there we're wavering. Maybe we don't even realize it. Or maybe there was a time where we really could honestly say God had first place in our lives. But now our allegiance is divided, and what Elijah is calling out is a divided allegiance, kind of trying to play it both ways. Yeah, that's no allegiance at all. There's a real choice to make. And whether we can see it clearly or not, I pray this morning you can hear it and see it clearly, because you can't afford to hesitate between the two. I know that not just because of this story in Elijah, but, but the way Jesus talks. It doesn't seem like he gives this option where you could be kind of in. Jesus calls to his disciples to follow him. That call, that call is for you to look at your values and say, do I value Jesus with my life? If I, if I were to take just a... a a sample of your conversations this week when you're in the car with your family or in the car with, with your friends or, or what's going on in your head. Is it regularly like, I am the Lord's? Or would you say, now the, the allegiance seems more divided. Actually, God doesn't come up that much. Just don't even think about him that much. Jesus calls for our plans for the future to be submitted to him. 
Jesus calls for our priorities and our decisions and our spending and our life's goals to be submitted to him. Jesus calls for our behavior to be submitted to him. This is what it means to follow him. Jesus calls us to look at hard at, at what we're willing to live without, what we sacrifice to, what we sacrifice for, what we cherish as a dream, what hard decisions we're willing to make because of something that matters to us. Jesus calls us to look hard. And I think this is exactly what Elijah is calling the people of God to. And I believe that's what God is calling us today to. We have a choice to make. You think you might be able to just ride kind of neutral at your school, neutral at your work, neutral in your life. But there's this moment, there's this moment where we're getting pushed off the fence and the best of both worlds, it's not going to happen. It really is God's mercy when we feel the urgency of that because we don't always, we don't always feel the life and death urgency. That's what's going on. Elijah's calling the people of Israel to realize this, is, this isn't games we're playing here. Baal worship will land them alienated from God. It would be a path of spiritual death. What if they didn't grasp the urgency of this moment? You see, we can read even contests like these in Scripture, and we, you know, maybe one analogy we pull over is like a sports contest, but regardless of who wins the Super Bowl, the, the other team wakes up the next day. We watch elections and we begin to have the election returns and a lot, a lot in the world is shaped by elections, but we also recognize the person that loses the election will have some sort of gig as an analyst the next day on a cable news network, right? So, so somehow the urgency and we go, well, they had a choice to make and I hope they'd choose the Lord, but sometimes we don't feel the urgency in our own life that, no, no, the decisions I'll make in 2018 will lead me somewhere. And it will either lead me toward the Lord or it will lead me away from him. And if I walk away from him, then I'm, I'm walking towards spiritual death. It's mercy when we grasp that urgency. It even presses the urgency when we realize it really was life or death for Elijah. Because there are people that seek his life. And it really was life or death for the prophets of Baal in this moment. The games are over. It's time to make a choice. What if we don't grasp that urgency? What if you think you've got another year or another five years to play the game and straddle the fence? Where it's kind of about you and kind of about God. Maybe you have this mapped out. Maybe like a decade from now when you're at an older age, you'll, you'll go all in for the Lord, but not now. But Elijah asked the question, let me ask it again, how long are we going to do this? It's interesting, I talked with a friend this week, and this, this friend had a story that I've heard repeated many times. This friend of mine grew up in church, regularly was in church, kind of all, all he knew for a lot of his life. And in that moment, often kind of as he grew up, thought he could kind of have the world and have God and kind of have both. The world's very appealing, but still want to leave room in his life for some God. And then he had a medical diagnosis. That was kind of his moment. So he didn't go up to Mount Carmel. His moment was when he had a medical diagnosis that changed his life. And kind of in that moment, it was a decision had to be made. And, and the decision for my friend was, it, it was at that moment that I went all in for the Lord. Not that he was perfect, 
Not that everything in his life, everything was a a wonderful, everything was perfect. Every decision was the right one. Perfect, pure, holy, every step of the way. No, no, no. But it was a moment of decision where he decided, and and I heard this even again after the first service where a person recounted another story just like this where they decided God got their attention and in that moment they knew there was a real choice to make. And they couldn't play the game anymore and you you are in a room surrounded by men and women who have come to that point, and maybe it was in high school, maybe it was in college, maybe it was in their 30s, maybe it was in their 40s, maybe it was when they were 60 or 70, that that they realized, I I can't waver. I can't waver between two opinions. It's the mercy of the Lord when we recognize what this choice is all about. I I pray you feel the press of this choice. Because we're not talking about cleaning up a few externals and trying to be a little bit better person. We're saying, I am not my own. I am yours, Lord. All, all to you I give. So my first question is like, do, do you realize that there's a choice to be made? But, but the second part of that is, okay, when you make that choice, let's say you today make that choice. You recognize maybe for a while you haven't noticed it, but your heart's really been wavering. You've kind of been going back and forth. You've wanted the best of both worlds. What happens when you say, I am going to walk with the Lord. I'm going to choose to follow the Lord. What does a relationship with the one true God look like? If we say, if we say that the Lord, he's God, what will that mean? What does a relationship with the one true God look like? Let's say you've made the choice and you say, Curtis, I feel like the Lord is calling me to get off the fence and to follow him. What is my relationship with the one true God look like? I think this passage answers that question with a contest that really presents a contrast. So here, here's, the, here's where the contest begins to take shape. Look at verse 25 in this chapter. 1 Kings eighteen twenty-five. it says, Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bowl and prepare it. You prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God. Don't put fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them and they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, cry, saying, cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. What does a relationship with the real God look like? Well, this is what it doesn't look like. Did you notice? Did you pick up what was going on there as the prophets of Baal are crying out? Yeah, see, this is what it doesn't look like. Because the, the prophets of Baal are crying out desperate prayers for a long time. It goes from morning till noon, and then noon to the evening offering, and there's no answer. I mean, Elijah mocks them, and in, in some ways the mocking is comical. God's really busy. You better yell out. He may be off on doing something that you better really yell. 
He may have not heard you yet. You, you. More intense. I mean, he's mocking them in some ways. It's comical in other ways. It's sad, isn't it? Because the rituals go on. They limp around the altar. They cry. They cut. They rave. More time elapses and no answer comes. What do they need to do? What do they need to do to get their, their, their God's attention? Have they done the right ritual? Have they cut themselves deeply enough, enough times? Do they need to hurt? Do they need to wail? Do they need to bleed so that finally a God will pay them attention? Have they done it long enough? Have they been intense enough? And the sad part, I mean, it's a sad story. The sad part of that is this is repeated in our day and time. Because this is what we do with idols, false gods, things that matter more than they should, things that become ultimate to us when they were good but shouldn't have ever been ultimate to us. We place so much hope in them. And we cry out to them and we count on them to deliver what we put our hope in. You know, there's no advertisements that come up. There's no commercials that come up for the shame and guilt attached to wasting your life. And so you think, like, pursuing this relationship, you think pursuing this sort of lifestyle is going to just make, make you happy and make you fulfilled because it just seems to promise a lot. But then in the end, you almost feel like these prophets who are crying out saying, deliver us, rescue us, but no answer comes. Or maybe just in, the, in a moment, everything you've worked for collapses. There's no warning labels attached to things you pursue saying, you may want to be careful because this doesn't deliver on its promises. There's no truth in advertising as people all around us, all around us, and even many of us in this room, we make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, maybe for a career or maybe for a person, and we think we'll do it because we'll we'll get what we want out of this. And you work so hard to build your career, you climb the ladder, and then you realize it all crumbles in in a moment, overnight. One meeting with the boss, and it's all done. And you go, that's, that's what I gave my life for. Or you want that person's attention. You want that person's affection so much. And you have told yourself again and again, if I just had it, if she liked me, if he liked me, if, if we could have a, a relationship, if we could be together, everything would just be right. And you begin to hang your hopes on that and you, you count on that. And then in a moment, it's gone. And you feel just like they felt with no one answered, no one listened, no one paid attention. In the midst of that is the truth of the still small voice of God. Maybe it comes through the words of a few wise godly friends that say, be careful. Be careful, watch this, because it seems like this matters to you, and I get that, but it it seems like it's mattering too much to you. It seems like she means more to you than anything else in the world, Even, even the Lord. Maybe you need that voice coming to you. What does it look like when you have a true relationship with God? Well, for the people that were worshiping Baal, they're giving, they're giving, and it's a frenzy, and it's activity, and it's ritual, and nothing delivers. But then there's the flip side. There's the contrast. Look at verse 30 of this chapter. Verse 30, Elijah says to all the people, come near to me. And the people came near to him. We kind of expect them to just get on with it, right? Call the fire down. God's going to deliver. But he repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And notice the, just the detail of the writer. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes 
of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with those stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. He put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So when God shows his mighty power, it will be unmistakable. Verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord God, pay attention to this prayer. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What a contrast. What a contrast because instead of this frenzied ritual in which they had to be more intense and and make themselves bleed more, Elijah, did you notice what he started with? He starts with the story. I mean, yeah, he's repairing the altar, but the altar is connected to a story, isn't it? There really is a story. And and Elijah won't be rifling through a bunch of impersonal rituals, but rather he will do What he will do will be remind the people of Israel, you're part of a bigger story. A God called you into existence. You have ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, also named Israel. And God made a covenant with them. Let's repair this altar. But even as we repair it, we're going to repair it with 12 stones to remind us. God has a history with us. There's a story that God is writing And even as he prays, he he addresses his prayer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. God had made promises, covenant promises, to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. What does a real relationship with the Lord look like? It always starts with the story, a story that God initiated, a story that God is writing, a story of love and faithfulness and mercy. That's what a relationship with God, we, we go back to a story. We go back to a story. But that story gets personal, dots are connected, and that story wasn't just something irrelevant for Elijah's time. It was very relevant because he prays to this God to act today, to act in the presence of all those people. God invited his people to be renewed that very day. He mentions that God has spoken to him. God hasn't been off in the distance, but very close. We've got a God who's writing a story, and that story in that moment became very personal to all the people of Israel that were listening. But that story not only becomes personal, that story is what, the God of that story is who can change our hearts. That's exactly what Elijah was praying. Lord, let them know that you're the one that's turned their hearts back. They might vocalize in a moment, you know, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, and talk can be cheap. But this goes far beyond just what they might verbalize. What Elijah wants is to see their heart go back to the Lord. What does our relationship with God look like? It looks like this. It, looks, it starts with the story, and the story becomes very personal to us. It's not just their story or someone else's story, but it's our story. And that story, 
And the God of that story changes our lives. This is exactly what it means to believe in Jesus. Christians have been formed by a story, and it's, it's actually the same story that's been expanded when we realize what Jesus has done for us. So the story of all those who are Christians in this room, all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation, this is your story. The story of a God who acted in real time, in real space, in love and mercy. A God who came into this world and showed his love and faithfulness in human form in Jesus Christ. A God who was faithful. His son who was faithful where Israel failed. A story that involves Jesus going to the cross, being a man of sorrows, paying a debt of people that were great, great debtors, freeing them from bondage, freeing them from sin, fulfilling everything in the old covenant and being the mediator of a new one. It's interesting, the story that we tell is not one of people cutting themselves to bleed for God, but a God who takes human form and bleeds for us. This is the difference, and it's all the difference in the world. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who is connected to that story, who has believed that story. And it's become not just a distant story, but a very personal story, not just something like a, a, grand, a grandfather believed, but somewhat, something that we believed. It's become very personal because we realize, because God has opened our eyes, it was for us. He cared about us. He cared about you. He cared about your life. And he gives you that invitation and because that story comes so personal to us, God changes us. We don't offer sacrifices to, to try to make God atone for us in some way. We don't offer sacrifices to try to get God to listen when we call. God has already initiated. But God changes our hearts. There's something that happens to Christians. Something that happens to people that follow Jesus Christ. That is, the Lord comes into their life and he changes things. He makes us loyal where before we, we would have been glad to dismiss him. He makes us love. He makes us devoted. He, he makes us interested in holiness and purity. And we just can't ignore what God has done for us. So, so here, here's the question we have a choice to make, and, and I pray that you'll see the urgency of that choice, but, but does your relationship with God look like that? Is it connected to this greater story that has become personal to your life and is, is making changes? The people in Elijah's time had been so lulled to sleep. It took 450 prophets of Baal getting up on a mountain with fireworks coming down. I mean, it took a major, major confrontation for the people of God to recognize, wait a minute, for you, it may not be that. For you may not be climbing a mountain. It may be like right as we sit today. The Lord is, is telling you, come back. Choose. You know, if, if you want to follow false God, if you want to go your own way, then, then you just do that. But if the Lord truly is God, then follow him. Follow him. We need God to turn our hearts back. We need God to give us a new heart. This morning, what we're left with is is a prayer to say, Lord, search me. Because I want to be able to say, the Lord, he is God. And I want the fact that the Lord 
he is God and the fact that I'm a sinner and unworthy of his grace, I need, I need the Lord's work, Jesus Christ's work on the cross. I need to see that was for me. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to follow him. I believe it's a very demanding call. But before I would say, come on church, let's all follow Jesus. What I, what I want you to know first is Jesus has gone first. He's the one in grace and mercy that says, because of what I've done, because I can change you from the inside out, follow me. Follow me. Can I ask you to bow your head? Can I ask you to consider whether the Lord might be revealing to you some choice you need to make, some step you need to take? What will be that next step? It'll mean no more wavering. Who do you need to talk to? Who would be helpful for you to talk to? There'll be people available after service, but maybe it's a friend, maybe it's someone that, a spiritual mentor of yours that you say, I I just need to come clean. I've been wavering and hesitating. What will be your choice today? Lord, give us grace where we find areas of our life where we we are wavering and we're trying to have it really both ways, where you are calling your people away from that and back to true worship. Lord, where you are reminding us of not only the big story of what you've done, but even our own personal story of rescue and deliverance. I pray that we would follow and give our lives in obedience because you've loved us first. Give us wisdom. I pray that you give all of us wisdom to know the next step. And then we'd be far beyond just good intentions. But we would, we would have you do a deep work in our hearts today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.